Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Dawn Xiang and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. And it is my pleasure to introduce today's panel Making the Modern Athlete, a conversation with David Epstein and Malcolm Gladwell. The panel will run for 45 minutes, and then we'll have 10 minutes at the end for any questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can do so using Twitter, using the hashtag modernathlete. And with that, I will turn it over to the panelists to introduce each other. Should I, should I go first? Sure. My name is, uh, oh, no, we're going to introduce each other. This is David Epstein. Um, he. Uh, we met because I was reading his previous book called Sports Gene, and he devotes several pages to attacking my work. And I, and I, I read the attack and realized actually that he was correct. And so we became friends, and we, he's a very, very good runner. And we used to run together, um, and he would leave me exhausted. Uh, and then he has now written a new book uh, coming out in May called Range, which we will be discussing. Um, I have the easier job here, I guess. This is Malcolm Gladwell, um, the proprietor of the Twitter handle, at Gladwell. Um, you know, obviously, m many times, um, best-selling author to the extent that the titles and, and coinage in some of his books, I think, are just uh, have entered like popular lingo, like Tipping Point and Blink and Outliers uh, in September, a new book, Talking to Strangers, um, and the host of the podcast, Revisionist History, uh, and a writer for The New Yorker, and depending what month and year you catch him, a borderline world-class mile runner for his age group. That's very, very sweet you say that. By the way, that's the only thing I care about. Is how sad is that? The only thing I really cared about was the last thing you said. But my, my running prowess. But we were just we were just in the waiting room here, looking up the FAQ on Nicholas Sparks site, who was yeah. a great 800 meter runner. You know, and is like one of the best selling novelists of a generation. And in his FAQ, he prominently says like, if you average my best times in the 800 meters, they fall between this and this. So he's obviously still like sensitive about his best times, despite yeah. all, in, never, from like high school, despite all his other. You never novels. get over it. Um, so I would like to let's talk. Uh, let's start by talking a little bit about your new book, which fascinates me. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the kind of uh, question that you're, the paradox that you're trying to address is that maybe the best way to excellence at X is not by doing X. Is that fair? I think that's fair to say um, not by doing X as narrowly and specifically and early as possible. Yes, because yeah. eventually, of course, you have to do X. Uh, but yeah, I think that's the case. And you know, part of the, the genesis of it came out of our discussion here five years ago, where because it was framed as 10,000 hours versus the sports gene, and even though like we had plenty of common ground, you know, I sort of anticipated that maybe 
part of a corollary to your argument would be that you know, a head start in specialized practice, it's called deliberate practice, that uh, was in, in insurmountable advantage. So I went and, and collated data from all the studies that looked at the longitudinal progression, the development of athletes, right? And most of the studies, we can talk about this a little later, but most of the studies of elite athletes have like a real, what's called a restriction of range problem, basically, where you're only looking at the finished product, pretty much. And so you can end up giving like really perverse advice to how to develop an athlete if you're only looking at elites. Like many years in the NBA, there's a negative correlation between scoring and height. So if you didn't recognize the restriction of range, you'd tell like parents to have shorter kids for them to score more points in the NBA. Um, and so when I looked at this data, what I saw was that the athletes who go on to become elite tend to be later specializers. They do more sort of free-form play early on, less deliberate practice, wider range of exposure to different sports, gain a breadth of skills, learn about their own interests and abilities, and they focus later, and then they surpass their peers. Wait, wait I don't want to jump ahead too, too much here because this is a, an absolutely crucial observation of yours. But um, let's start with the paradigm with which you start the book, which is the two, two of the greatest athletes of our age, each of whom represents a different way of thinking about this problem of how to be great. That's right. So the first one is Tiger Woods, of course, who I think is probably the single most famous example of athletic development or maybe of expertise development in the world ever. Um, and Tiger Woods was very unusual, of course, as a kid. I mean, he's there, if you read Earl Wood's book, there's pictures of Tiger bouncing on his palm at six months old, and he started golfing before he was one, and all these things. And that sort of became the model um, from which we extrapolate to like anything that people want to get good at. And and part of the argument that I make in the book is that golf actually turns out to be like a really horrible model of almost everything else that people want to learn in the wider world. Um, but the other athlete I look at is, is Roger Federer, who is certainly as well-known as an athlete, but his development story is much less well-known, where he was, did an incredible array of sports, mostly in a very lightly structured environment, if structured at all. When he wanted to focus on tennis, his mother wouldn't allow him to focus on tennis, had to continue playing badminton, basketball, and soccer. And so he was like years behind many peers who were already working with like physiologists and nutritionists and focusing in. And you know, that doesn't seem to have uh, hampered his development. Yeah. To say the least. Now, so we have these two models. We have Roger and we have Tiger. And in the popular mind, Tiger is the, Tiger is conventional wisdom. Roger seems surprising to us. Before we go into this, to talk about those two models in more detail, why, had, why did Tiger win in the kind of popular imagination as a developmental model? That's a great question. I mean, I think, one, it's so dramatic. Uh, you know, there's video of him as a two-year-old on television shows demonstrating his skills. So it's just incredibly um, dramatic, you know? And so I think it's perfect for like Daniel Kahneman's availability heuristic, like the most dramatic thing sticks in our mind. Uh, but also the way, I think it's sort of a, it's a hopeful story one, right? It suggests the idea that there is no such thing, sort of individual differences that limit someone. It's just this, this environmental exposure and accumulation of practice. So I think it's a very hopeful message. It's a pretty simple one to tell. Um, and, and it's just very dramatic. But um, a couple of, of thoughts on the Tiger model. The precursor for the Tiger model, there were several, but the, the best known was probably the Suzuki method in music, right? An idea that comes to, to the fore, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know, 60s, 70s, out of Japan, saying the way to create a great musician was to get, start playing at astonishingly early ages. So there are the seeds of this notion 
that the minute your child can stand, put a violin in their hand or a tennis racket in their hand. Um, but I'm still not satisfied with the, with the question of why we find that so appealing. Is it, is it, um, is it as simple as that there is something um, uh, emotionally um, seductive about the child mastery of an adult game, of a, a more sophisticated game. I mean, there's something, un, the early Tiger Woods videos or the, or the two-year-olds who are playing Chopin are incredibly, um, uh, they're, uh, they're addictive. They're like yeah. the cutest thing you've ever seen, right? They're like cat videos. Yeah. They're human cat videos. Yeah, yeah. Human cat videos, that's a good one. Um, the, I wish I'd thought of that. Um, <laughs> I wonder if there's any time to make changes in the books. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, and there, were, there was a, there's a lot embedded in what you just said, and I think, and you've written about this, we're obsessed with precocity, yeah. right? In some cases, we deem someone a genius because they did something early, even if their later development does not reflect that same trajectory. We're totally obsessed with precocity, and I don't think that's necessarily a good thing because, you know, we see it looks like the normal path, and there's people get to ex expertise and excellence via an incredible array of paths, but the norm is, is delaying, right? And, you know, with, with all the um, selection mechanisms that we have in the world, the, even all this pressure that are forcing people to specialize, we're still seeing that the norm is people who can delay that. So I think there's an obsession with precocity uh, in everything. Like, right, people think it's great if their kid learns to walk early or to read early, even though that has been shown over and over. Great, finish the thought. I want to tell you something. Finish the thought. To have like no predictive value for their ultimate outcome. Yes. Like whatsoever. My brother, who's an elementary school principal, this is his favorite riff about how parents get so excited about the fact that their child will read early, get, reads early, and his whole point is, well, what's, of what possible value is this when everyone learns to read eventually? Right. right? It's only useful to be the first at something if you, if you maintain that advantage over the course of your life. But no, exactly. And yeah. there's been, and so there's been actually some, some, some really interesting work that I write about in the book where if you look at all of kind of the Head Start academic programs that give kids like this incredible academic boost early on, there's a, a ubiquitous fade out effect. It looks just like, it looks just like the curves of athletes where the, the, the people who are specialized later are behind and then they cross over. It's the same thing. And the fade out is actually a catch up because the quickest way to give someone an advantage is to teach them what's called closed skills, which are the things that you can teach them and you can measure the progress right away and that everyone is going to learn anyway. So it's not a lasting advantage. So the more we push like kind of the hyper specialized model of development, the more we focused on these closed skills that you can measure right away. And the more that's an advantage that's just going to fade out, which is why there's such like one of the reasons why there's such horrible transference from like youth athletes with highlight reels to, you know, yeah. adult. I remember doing this, uh, speaking of, in running, uh, if you go back and you look at the greatest milers in Canada as 14-year-olds, and then you re-examine the list eight years later to see who's still a great miler, there's about one name that appears on both lists. Yeah. So there's fade out as one of the people who faded out. And, and I, <laughs> I'm acutely aware of this phenomenon that it doesn't, it, you know, it, it translates in the case of, and here we're getting into running, Kevin Sullivan, the greatest Canadian runner of all time. He's on both lists, but, but he, was, he was Tiger Woods. He was our, he was a Canadian Tiger Woods, a lesser species. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I wanna, so there's, but talk to me, before we go on from this, to, to return 
to the moment to the Tiger advantage. You said this tantalizing thing, that it turns out that golf is the least useful model. Why, what is it about golf that makes it, it's, it's, it's totally non-dynamic, right? You, you don't need to use any anticipatory skills, really, which are judging where bodies and balls are going in the future, right? Like, everything in sports happens too fast for, like, elite athletes don't have any faster than normal reaction speed. They actually have to learn how to process positions of objects in the field to see what's gonna come next. Um, and so it just looks like they're, they're moving faster, and golf doesn't have any of those types of skills, so it doesn't use any of that type of psychological chunking. Um, it's basically, it's much more like an industrial um, task where you're trying to minimize deviation from a known perfect movement as much as possible. Totally non-dynamic, right? And so the analogy I make in the book to it is also things like chess that are totally um, based on repetitive pattern recognition, constrained rules. You want to minimize mistakes as much as possible, which is why those things are also the easiest to automate. Um, and will have like the least value going forward. The things that are most amenable to the kind of repetitive pattern recognition uh, that makes someone a prodigy in like chess or golf are the, also the things that are most automatable. Yeah, so are you saying that for this, so let's return to our thesis from the beginning, that being excellent at X requires doing much more than X. So are you bracketing golf and saying, let's leave golf out of this particular, golf and chess, can we leave those out? I think there's an argument to be made. Like the, the work hasn't really been done, but I do. I think chess, yes. Like I think there's a reason why. Basically, I don't know. There's something like 20 or something like that grandmaster chess players all time who have reached grandmaster status below the age of like 15, and the oldest one is like my age now because that's a phenomenon very much of the growth of computer chess where you can study many more patterns. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, if you aren't studying patterns like pretty seriously by age 12, your chance of becoming a grandmaster drops from like or an international master, which is one level down from that, from like one in four to like one in 55, like instantly. Um, By the way, still 12, so yeah, not six. That's right, that's right. So you, yeah. so you can delay it a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think there are certain, I, I, think, I think the main, I, I don't even know what the joke was there. Um, <laughs> the joke is that our, our perception of what it means to start something oh. is so distorted now that we consider 12 to be late. Oh, well look, when I was living in, in Brooklyn, across the street from me, there was a U6 travel soccer team that would meet, right? Because, because five-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my, I have an all-purpose rule for uh, youth sports, which is you should never have to travel uh, to the game for a period that's longer than the game. That should be the rule. You say that, but as a track fan, the 100 meters would be totally untenable. <laughs> no, well, yeah, all right. Track, track, accept it. You're a miler. Where are your meets? None of my, no, none of, my, none of my rules ever apply to the things I do. There are always exercises in imposing my values on someone else. Um, wait, but so, uh, so we're going to bracket golf and... Golf and, yeah. uh, and the, by the way, the diss that you've just delivered to the golfing world is so fantastic. I, this is, so are we saying that golf, golf is a kind of, we've all secretly known it's a sort of lesser sport. <laughs> and now you're kind of confirmed. You said it. it. It's, a, it's automatable. You've likened go golfers to chess players, to kind of introverted, you know, socially awkward, spectrumy people who hide in their closets. I, I, I don't think I said any <laughs> of those things. Um, no, but there's a serious point here, which is, in other words, so if we're going to catalog the mistakes that we've made in falling in love with Tiger and forgetting about Roger, I'm going to get to Roger in a moment, 
The first mistake that we have made is that we have been indiscriminate in our understanding of what models are useful for the kinds of things that most of us are interested in. Yes. Yes. Okay. I agree. Now, let's just hop on the other side and talk about uh, Roger Federer's history. It is not as well known. Right. And it's almost like we're not, in why are we not interested in, um, what is it about that story that doesn't grip us? Well, I mean, for one, there's no dramatic video, right, of him going on, on TV. So there's just not these, like, these clips that you can play over and over. There's not the same obsession with precocity, again. Um, and, like, what's the advice you draw from it? Like, expose yourself to a whole bunch of stuff. It's not, like, so easy to... There is advice. So walk us through the argument for doing it the Roger way. What does Roger learn by... What's he playing? He's playing soccer? Badminton and... I mean, before that, he was doing just like an incredible array of everything from like skateboarding, you know, all kinds of physical literacy stuff, right? And this is... And because I think it's part of it's about like general movement capacity, right? So like Cirque du Soleil, which is a Canadian company, decided to have their performers learn other performers' basic skills. And these are... So they're taking away time from these performers to have them learn stuff they'll never perform and found like their injury rates. They measure their injury rates next to Canadian gymnastics and they drop by like a third basically. So I think there's some anti-fragile aspect to doing this variety of things. But I think there were, there were a couple of hypotheses when I saw that this data. One is just that the better athletes can just play all the sports. That's one, right? The other is that the earlier you push selection, the more likely you put the wrong person into the wrong category. So this basically. is crucial. Wait, pause on this one, because this to me is the most interesting of all the arguments. Let's okay. talk about this. Okay. Well, can I give number two then yeah. instead? Since we'll, okay. And then the other one is that there's an actual skill development benefit to diversifying what you're doing. That one I thought was not so plausible, but in the intervening years, you know, since we had our first discussion, I started looking through all these soccer studies and there would be like, say, you know, German researchers who would take kids at age 11, 12, or 13, match them for skill level, track them longitudinally over the next couple of years, see what they do, and find that the ones who did less structured soccer and more exposure to other sports informally would have progressed more by the time they checked in. So now I'm convinced that there's actually also a skill development benefit to this. Yeah. Now, actually, actually, I'm interested in both those. So the skill development thing, so why is it you, are, you have better skill development in an unstructured situation than in a structured situation? I think it's, I think it's partly because, um, first of all, the game when you get to the elite level is, is totally different, right? Like if we think of something like, like tennis, in amateur tennis, 80-some percent of the points are scored based on keeping the ball in play until someone makes a mistake. And at the pro level, that totally switches. You have to proactively yeah. score. So it's a totally different game. And you have to be able to anticipate things in much more rapid manner. And you're processing in a way that's much more akin to language. So if, if you actually dig into the Suzuki method, Suzuki himself was a late specializer. His father owned a violin factory. And, and his, I read his childhood memoirs. And he writes about how all he and his siblings would do was beat each other up with violins. Like, that's what they thought they were for. Uh -huh. And then he heard, like, like you know, Ave Maria or something on the radio and decided to take one home and try to teach himself to play and likened it to language acquisition. So if you read his actual tenets, he says, early on you want exposure, but not this kind of drilling repetitive. He says, you know, kids acquire language first, they acquire the sound first before you teach them the grammar. And I think that's similar with these sports skills. You want people to learn like a baby. You want them to be thrown in, immersed, because they're going to have to learn this stuff so that they have to execute it so quickly that it's unconscious. Right? Yeah. And, the, and the only way you do that is being thrown in, struggling, striving, you know, having to try to come up with stuff, as opposed to sort of learning these repetitive, um, 
procedures in a much more like explicit manner, which will not be fast enough to execute as the levels go up and will not be creative enough as the levels go up. Yeah. So like instead of, you know, if you go to Brazil, right, the kids aren't playing soccer, they're playing futsal on like a space this big that's on the sand and the ball is on cobblestones and it's bouncing in all these different ways. And so they're getting like six times as many anticipatory judgments that they have to make even when they don't make the ball, even when they don't have the ball per minute, as like American kids in academies who are playing on full size fields. Right? France, which just won the World Cup, overhauled their whole development system a few decades ago to, they have about half as many games in elite French soccer player as an American will. And they, this one of the guys who designed it has this phrase, there's no remote control for the players. The coaches aren't allowed to talk except for like these 15 minute like boxed moments and the kids have to do problem solving on like small fields. So it's much more teaching them this physical problem solving instead of those closed skills you know, and I mean, you've written about this in youth basketball, right? If you want to teach people certain skills that everyone's going to learn later, you can make sure to win at youth basketball. But that doesn't actually develop the players in yeah. a very good way. The, what about, and this is a, not a frivolous question, it is also the case that unstructured play when you're young is more fun. Yeah. And I wonder how many people are lost to the system simply because they become convinced that this thing that they're being required to do for hours a day is not fun at all. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important point. And if you look at, there's some really interesting studies in tennis about that where these kids, if, if out of Scandinavia, that included people who went on to become like top 10 in the world. And if you look at kids that are really good young, someone spots them and says, this kid's got something, but isn't that refined? So if we just put them on the program, then they'll really be great. And all of those kids basically end up dropping out because they, they don't, they become inflexible. They get put in what's called a restrictive environment, especially the girls. Um, and kind of told what to do and taken away from all the things that worked, right? Like Andy Murray's mom runs a camp where basically her imprimatur allows her to charge people to like send their kids to her and just like let them be kids and play these like kids games. Um, and so I think the fun, you know, it is a big, it is, it's obviously an important aspect. It's why they fall in love with it. And the, they don't know their own talents or interests until later, right? Like, I think like, you know. That, well, wait, so that brings okay. us back to number two. But, okay. but I, will, I will make in passing, all of these predictions, these observations you've made are of course beautifully borne out in the case of Roger Federer. So if we think of skill acquisition being um, facilitated by a broad range of experiences at an early age, he is someone whose level of breadth of skill dwarfed his peers. Um, if we think of physical develop, physical literacy, He's someone who stayed healthier longer than most of his peers. And if you think about love of the game, why is the man still playing at 36 and 37? He loves tennis, I mean, way more than anybody else, right? I mean, yeah. compare him to the, uh, who was the guy who famously would read paperbacks on the side? Um, Kevin, or Courier. Oh yeah. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, I mean. He was reading books at the, at the change, or between the changeovers. I mean, that's how burnt out he was at the age of 20. Um, what was his name? Courier. Jim? Jim Courier, yeah. But now, but now I want to go back to the one that fascinates me the most, which is this problem of uh, sampling. So this idea that if you select out a child at an early age for a specific sport, how do you know that's the right sport? Yeah. I love this notion. Wait, un unpack it. Well, I mean, mostly you don't, right? So it, the earlier you push selection, the more you select based on things that have nothing to do with their eventual development, like, like physical. So, I mean, one of the interesting things I never hear anyone talk about in the NBA is like, the later you have your growth spurt, the taller you are likely to become. 
So the earlier you're, you're deselecting people, because they haven't had their peak height velocity yet, as the physiologist would say, the more likely you are missing the people who are going to have the biggest growth spurts. So is it a big surprise that like Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman were like maybe today, well at least not Jordan, but Pippen and Rodman probably would have been out of the pipeline today by the time that they had their growth spurts, right? Giannis looks like he's been going through puberty since being getting drafted, right? Yeah. Right? And I don't, says the guy who like grows prepubescent facial hair still. <laughs> um, but that's important. So you want, you want to keep the pipeline as open as possible so you're not deselecting people these young ages. Like Adam Silver said yesterday, you know, maybe we should have these professional development academies that are sort of more professionalized for youth basketball players. And I get that because I think the AAU system is a disaster. And I think those, those teams are more likely created around a player with potential than the player being... Mm-hmm. you know, subsumed in them, but um, that might be helpful for them, like, learning life skills, but the early, the, the European soccer clubs in a lot of ways are sort of trying to undo some of that and, like, broaden their pipelines for these, these later developers and late bloomers like France did. Um, so I think any time, the earlier you push selection, the more likely you're picking, you're putting the wrong person in the wrong spot. So in, you know, what economists refer to as match quality. The longer you can delay selection, the more likely you are to improve match quality with what yeah. the person is doing. So what are the, the, really the decision about what sport to pick is often the parent's decision, is often as independent of the athlete, yeah. him or herself, right? It's, yeah. it's, I played the sport as a child, or this is the sport that is easy for me or pleasing for me, or it's based on a superficial criterion that if you are tall at seven, yeah. you're likely to be, um, push towards uh, uh, basketball. Yeah, and, um, and I mean, if you're tall at seven, you're more likely to be taller as an adult. You know, you may or may not be, yeah. but you're, you're more likely to... to so why, before we move on, you said that thing about, you think AAU is a disaster, but can you evaluate AAU in the, specifically in the context of the ideas that you're developing in, in range? Yeah, well, I think, I think for one, um, we hear like a tremendous amount about how youth athletic development should occur every day. Like if you listen to commentary in a game, you'll probably hear something that either talks about that or implies it. And, and as far as I can tell, like none of those people who are delivering the information have read like one sentence of like a century worth of work on this area. Um, which of course like provides opportunities for people like me, but um, that AAU is, some of it, and I think it's very like balkanized, but is invested in selling this message that send your kid to me, like I'm the caretaker, I know how the pipeline should work, and all the science says something different, right? If there's AAU, like second graders, national championships and stuff like that, or, or again, to go to golf, there's um, uh, this like diaper division world championships where the kids like fly to Singapore and, and their dads like tell them what club to use and how to angle it. So they're literally outsourcing all of the cognitive aspect of the game and they're just like a joystick, you know, or like a bundle of motor skills. Mm-hmm. And, the, and these kids, w- when they're being taught, like it's a totally different game when they're, when they're that age. And so teaching them the adult skills, like this guy, Ian Yates, who's worked with this incredible range, for UK athletics usually, incredible range of world-class athletes, told me his biggest problem is people come to him and say, I want my kid doing what ex-gold medalist is doing right now, not what ex-gold medalist was doing when they were 13 years old. Right? And I think AAU is selling the ability to sort of advance that progression when all the evidence suggests, you know, maybe they're not 
harmful enough to ruin the kids who have really high potential, but, but probably enough to deselect out people who would get to the top if they still had access to the pipeline. Yeah, yeah. What, do you know what age AAU starts? I haven't checked like my watch lately. No, I'm not. I mean, I, no, I don't know. Really, I know they have a. Last time I checked, I know there was a second grade national championship. Yeah. Um, where like yeah. kids, you know, were like heaving the ball like this. But I don't know if it's gone younger than that. Yeah. Now, um, but let's play with this. So let's talk about for a moment about what an optimal program should look like. So you just had a son. Yeah. So it, let's imagine that you had great designs on the athletic future of your son. Yeah. This is my plan to get every to, to stifle the competition. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Tell me, so if, what, what, should, what should an optimal athletic development trajectory path look like if you would like, if, you're, if your interest is in producing a world-class athlete? I tell mean, me what it looks like. I think early on, if, if we're talking about like most of the team sports, anticipatory skills, early on should totally focus on physical literacy. It doesn't matter if it's a sport or not, like teaching them how to use their body, basically. Um, whether that's outside, whatever it is, expose them to as much stuff as you possibly can. Because they're also gonna, if they focus in on something, they're gonna have to do a lot of work, so that you're gonna want them to like it. Mm -hmm. I think, from what I know of it, an ideal trajectory is sort of Esther Ledetska, who became the first woman to win two different sports at the Winter Olympics, at this last Winter Olympics, where she wasn't focused on teenage categories. She still plays, she won in skiing and snowboarding. She still plays uh, beach volleyball and windsurfing, and just did this incredible diversity of both team and individual sports gaining all this incredible variety of skills. And then you can learn the like sports specific stuff more quickly once you've got those skills, right? It's like, it's, it's a little like language learning in that way. I wanna be careful about the language acquisition research because some of it I think is like kind of shoddy, but one that I think holds up is people who like grow up bilingual, they may be delayed a little bit in showing certain language skills. But if you then give them like a fake system of grammar, they will learn that language better than someone who's only monolingual. It's like you've created this sort of palette that allows them to learn new skills henceforth more quickly. And so I think you'd go for this just like, for the skill building, this general physical literacy, and because you want, you have to maximize their match quality. I think more people than ever are selected out either by their nature or by their nurture from becoming an elite athlete. And so you really have to expose them to enough things that they can try to optimize their match quality or fit in where they fit best. Now are there, let's, let's, let's dig a little deeper here. Are there some, clearly we don't want this kid playing golf at an early age since it's not a real sport. So what sports? You're, you really have it in for golf. <laughs> what, what sports should, I mean, give me, give me a kind of short list of, I mean, and it is also the case, right, that if we're talking about learning physical liter literacy, and building a kind of platform that we can use to excel at some, uh, then all sports are not created equal. Yeah. So are there ones that you think, like, should it be gymnastics, some combination of gymnastics? In gymnastics, I don't know why I say that, but gymnastics strikes me as something that would be really, really useful to, to do at an early age, is that? If, I think so, I mean, if I were, if I were designing it, um, and incidentally, women's gymnastics is, you have to specialize early, because you have to be prepubescent, right? So female gymnasts have shrunk from five foot three to four foot nine on average the last 30 years because it's, it, you know, lower moment of inertia for twisting in the air and, and mm -hmm. better power to weight ratio. But if I, you know, could replace the golf courses, I would put in like sort of like indoor padded parkour, like physical problem solving courses, basically. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would do if I were like the emperor of um, promoting physical development. But fortunately, since the U.S. has such a large, like we have a greater participation base than the rest of the world. So 
we basically burn a lot of people with non-optimal development because we can, yeah. you know? Um, and so we're not really pushed to do better in a lot of ways because we have this incredible funnel. But wait, I want to keep going with the rules here. Let's do, let's do David Epstein's rules for parenting. So no travel squads. Got a month under my belt, so. I'm yeah, that's right. No travel squads, clearly. I mean, not, not early, yeah, no. What, at what age would you, would you be willing to let your son join a traveling See, school? That's a really difficult question because the systems are setting up to force you to have to specialize even if it's not the best thing, right? If someone says like, well, you can't be on the sixth grade team if you're not on the fifth grade team and then you can't be on the high school team, then you're forced to. Yeah. So I think you really have to balance. Well, let's, um, that, that, that's a separate problem, but let's just optimize. Yeah. So if you could choose, yeah. how late would you wait for specialization? Oh, I think probably mid-teen years at the earliest. Mid-teen years at the earliest. I mean, and that's just going based on the data when you see that crossover. And I don't know if that means that's when it's actually optimal or that's when you're getting toward like later in high school. But that's when I would do it. But I would continue, if they could, continuing them in like, like the Cirque du Soleil. I mean, because those people are incredible athletes. Well, I mean, a lot of them were Olympic medalists. Mm -hmm. um, and they're still continuing to diversify. And I think a lot of pro athletes would benefit. Like, we do a reasonable job of selection and curation for pro athletes, but I would argue not the best job of actually developing them. And, and, and I understand that. Like you get these NBA players, they're such, you know, like I, from what I've seen of NBA players like strength training, it's like not rigorous. They're like pretty coddled, I think, once they get there because they're so skilled, you kind of just don't want to break it. It's like a china shop, right? But that also means you sacrifice optimal development. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're not doing such a good job of making them the best they can be necessarily. Um, you know, we have a good funnel, so the ones who are going to do that anyway come through, but I would add diversification to current elite athletes. Yeah. I'm always amazed whenever you hear, as someone who listens to an endless number of, of sports podcasts, you know, they'll talk about some NBA player and they'll say so-and-so, and, -so and but he has terrible footwork. And I always think, if only there were a way to teach a highly skilled athlete to have a better footwork. Okay. I mean, someone should invent. So, like, so, so the greatest footwork of any athlete, I think, active now is Vasil Lomachenko, you know, who was the um, uh, fastest fighter just recently, pretty recently, um, to win world title three different weight classes. Uh, his father exposed him to boxing early. Then he took four years off to learn traditional Ukrainian dance, okay? Mm -hmm. And when he gets asked about it, like, so do you credit dance for your footwork? And he's incredible. He says, like, I think that helped, but also it was like the soccer, the volleyball, the basketball, and all that stuff coming together. Just left boxing for four years sabbatical for traditional Ukrainian dance. And to me, he has the best footwork of any currently active athlete in the world in anything. Yeah. So maybe it's traditional Ukrainian dance. But really, <laughs> I think it's just that diversification. That diversification, yeah. yeah. The, um, but wait, I wanna go back to, so pro and By athletes. the way, boxing was like, AJ Liebling in the Sweet Science wrote like boxing is the that's the one sport. Boxers and drummers are the ones who have to specialize early, right? And then you have Vasil Lomachenko and Deontay Wilder, the heavyweight champion, who I interviewed in Beijing when he won the bronze medal, having started boxing like 20 months earlier than that for the mm -hmm. first time. Despite all of the systems that deselect people who don't specialize, these people are still rising to the top. Yeah. But now the, the, on the question of a, uh, a professional athlete, are you saying that maybe, there may be useful gains from diversification even past the point of selection and maturity. Um, the issue with them, of course, is what is the best use of your marginal time in right. the summer, right. right? So if I'm a NBA player, are you saying that I should at least think seriously about my, whether my marginal hour in the summer is better spent playing soccer than shooting, practicing my three-point shot? Or doing something you're not used to. You have to practice your three-point shot 
of course. And I think that that balance depends on how good someone is at something already. Yeah. But even if um, you want to get better at your three-point shot, like we know that periodizing, or it's what's called, and I write about this a lot in range called interleaving, where you mix, instead of practicing the same skill over and over and over, you mix it up. Um, you should go away from practicing that, do something else, and come back and do it again. And you'll make better use of your time. You'll optimize your time. And you should vary it, right? Like Shaquille O'Neal should not have been continuing to practice from the free throw line. He should have been practicing from two feet in front and two feet behind because his problem was he didn't have good motor modulation. So he shouldn't have just been doing the same thing over and over. You want to vary these challenges up. And that's kind of a principle we know from all sorts of physical training, that you shouldn't just do the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Two other questions. We, I see we have a 15-minute sign um, warning us. But I want to talk about two quick things. Um, one very quickly, um, injuries, we haven't talked explicitly about it. We had talked about it. But it, that strikes me as being a huge part of this story, since injuries are uh, the most significant limitation on the development of, of young athletes. And we do, am I, am I correct, have evidence to suggest that this kind of early diversification is a, is a protector against particularly overuse injuries. Early and late diversification, yeah. yeah. Um, and again, that, the Cirque du Soleil data, I think, shows that as well as anything. But um, yes, I don't like to focus on that as much because I think when it comes to parents, they're not really concerned about the health message, honestly, more the skill development message. Yeah. But there is that, that data, right? So it's really interesting where, in terms of the a sort of growing epidemic of adult-style overuse injuries in youth athletes, like things that will affect their career forever um, or curtail their development, it's negatively correlated to family socioeconomic status. So this is like one of the few like health epidemics that hits people who are well off because those are the ones who can afford like all the travel teams and all the personalized coaches. Yeah. So it's like this incredibly perverse thing. And at the same time, we've seen this Canadian researcher, Jean Cote, who looks at where do elite athletes come from, has seen the, the odds of an elite athlete, of a, of a kid going to the pros are much increased if he comes from a smaller town and it's getting smaller and smaller because those are the places where they aren't the competition isn't so hard when they're 12 that they're forced to specialize, mm -hmm. so they're allowed to continue dabbling longer. So I think with the good intentions of speeding kids up, we've basically made sure that elite athletes don't tend to come from those places anymore where we you yeah. know, have the most available to them. Because there's a protective effect and like a helpful match quality effect from Sam. That's super interesting. So the very, the impulse that the, that the uh, Little League parent has to quote, give their children the best opportunities, quote, to develop their ability, may have a, the perverse effect of holding the child back. Totally, I mean, if your goal is to win the Little League World Series, then it's probably good. Yeah. Um, but if you're trying to make the best 20-year-old, it's not the same way as making the best 10-year-old. Yeah. Um, and one other point that I want to talk about, and we'll get, we're gonna get some of these questions here, um, and that is uh, cognitive diversity. So I remember, I think I told you about this once. I remember having a conversation with someone who works a lot with uh, tennis, young tennis players in the, in the developmental strata of the, so basically 150 through 250 in the rank, tennis rankings, and says, not surprisingly, the great predictor of who makes the leap and who doesn't is not quality of your shots or your physical, any, any aspect of your physical game. It is whether you can whether you can learn to adapt your game on the fly. When, you, when something's not working in the game, can you recognize you have to change? He's like, some kids can, and some kids can't. And so he's identifying a kind of, some kind of cognitive, emotional, psychological component. And I was, when I heard that, I thought, that strikes me as the kind of thing you can only learn 
off the court doing something else. Like that, so I, there's another sort of benefit here, but it may not be a benefit that comes from, you may not learn that from doing another sport. Maybe, this goes to something that you and I wrote, uh, maybe it comes from like learning to take criticism in a, in a classroom or maybe it, you know. I mean, and, and even, even to the extent you do learn it on the court, I think this gets to one of the underlying premises of why like facing these physical problem solving situations in different contexts is important. So this is called, there's like a huge body of literature on this of the transfer of skills, right? And if you give people whatever math problems or naval threat simulations, if you give people similar situations over and over and over, on that day, they will master it and look great. Whereas if you give other people all these like mixed up environments, they'll look terrible and they'll come out saying, I learned nothing. And if you bring them back a month later, the people who think they learned nothing and had this incredible, you know, diverse experience will perform better on everything, including the thing that the other people only studied for that one day. So they're developing this, like, this, these, these base abstractions that they're then allowed to mold to new situations. It's called far transfer of knowledge. So in, in, or in math, it's like, instead of learning a procedure to solve a known problem, they're learning how to match a type of problem to a strategy. And I think that's very similar. And there's a huge body of literature on this, mm -hmm. more in cognitive skills, to what's going on with the perceptual expertise of athletes and why it's important for them to face this incredibly diverse um, array of scenarios because they're building these abstractions that they can then flex to new situations. Yeah. Because that's yeah. what they want. They want knowledge. When you're specializing the kids, you're teaching them how to deal with sort of known situations usually. But what you want is someone who has these capabilities that can adapt to anything that's thrown at them, particularly things they've never seen before. Yeah. What's striking actually is about in listening to you is how much the optimal way of preparing an athlete now starts to resemble more and more the optimal way of preparing an, uh, uh, an intellectual. Yeah, well, and right? I mean, it's, it is, I mean, most, most of range is about non-sports and, and you and I have actually like, right, we wrote a little bit about that. We did, together. Just so I, David and I were asked by my cousin who is the, who is the uh, editor of the Journal of Ophthalmology to write an editorial in the Journal of Ophthalmology, which is the most prestigious academic journal I've ever written for. It was very exciting. I felt honored. We, we wrote an editorial, but it was a really fascinating study to this point. It was about, a, um, can you, an ophthalmologist is required to read, to make very sophisticated diagnoses based on uh, a, a scan, like looking at essentially someone's, um, an X-ray or a CAT scan or something. And the question was, in medical school, if we take ophthalmology residents and we send them down the street to a museum to take art history lessons uh, and learn to look at works of art, do they end up having better diagnostic skills as ophthalmologists than their peers who stayed and did extra time at the medical school? And the answer is, the ones who went down the street ended up as way better op um, diagnosticians, which is exactly the point, it is that the medical school has done the exact same mistake that AAU and Little League do, which is they over-specialized, and they forgot that, that ophthalmologists need a, uh, a foundation of, of, of skills in, in, in doing this thing of trying to look at something and make sense of it. And that, that study was really interesting because the, the researchers said, we know that these visual skills are like the most, one of the most important things in our business why are we not better at making people better at it? And so they yeah. just tried this other thing of, 
of going over and, and giving them lessons in how to look at art, and they came back better. And, right, and, and I think you could make the argument, was it the looking at the art that was better, or was it what we know, which is stepping away from the skill you're practicing and coming back to it, mm -hmm. which made it better? And my guess is probably some of both, yeah. but we don't know which for Which sure. brings up a really interesting point, which is we do not mean in this discussion we've been having to single out the sports community for making the tiger error. In fact, we're everywhere in society we're making the tiger error. Medical schools are making the tiger error, right? That's, that was the point of that, of that particular study, that this, we have all been infected by this pernicious notion that the way to get better at X is only to do X. Yeah, and that doesn't mean it isn't a way to get better, but is it the best way to get better? Is it the way to optimize, yeah. to optimize development? And I think, you know, I mean, the reason I, the reason I wrote about this is because I think there's a lot, I think there are certain classes of tasks where the answer is yes, and many more classes of tasks where the answer is no. Yeah. Wait, I'm very confused by how much time we have left. How much time do we have left? Seven minutes? Ten, Ten minutes. minutes. Oh, good, lots of time. We could do some questions. Malcolm, what kind of shoes are you wearing is the first question. <laughs> They're ons. Um, Wait, what kind? Was that the answer? They're, these shoes are called ons. Cool. They're Swiss. I, I only wear them. I wear no other shoes, which I realize now is a mistake. Um, <laughs> To what extent, this is a good question. I was asking for that. <laughs> to what extent is commercialization, professionalization of youth sports driving early specialization? In other words, are Nike, Disney, and those with a financial interest responsible for perpetuating this system as a way of thinking? Is this, let's talk about that for a minute. So there's a, this is all happening in a very particular commercial climate. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that the, um, interests in the increasing specialization of youth sports is driven by adult interests, not by um, right, the interest, the optimal development of these kids, or else they wouldn't have these massively increased odds while coming from these places that don't have as much specialization. I don't know the extent to which, I mean, you know, like TV properties are really driving that. I know I see lots of like youth highlight reels, um, and I don't think most of those kids are going to continue on the same trajectory, right? but we're obsessed with that precocity and that head start. Right? I think of this as like the, the Julius Caesar issue. Right? He supposedly famously saw a statue of Alexander and said he's conquered so many worlds and I in all this time have done nothing when they were both like 25. And like pretty soon after that he was in charge of the Roman Republic and like pretty soon after that he turned it into a dictatorship and got murdered by his own pals. So like he peaked early, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and I think that's the case for a lot of youth athletes as well. So I don't think it's just this like institutional, purposeful, nefarious system. I think it's also, there's been a lot of talk about how social media changes the whole ecosystem, changes yeah. everything, and I think that's, that's, that's well, all. Well, I think, you know, what's, I will, I do think there's an interesting point in that question, which is, it may not be ov overt or explicit, but part of what has happened, I mean, one of the big points that I hear from you is that there is a qualitative difference, necessarily a qualitative difference, in the way that a sport is played at the age of 10 than in, a way it is, than in the way it is played at an elite level at 22. Yeah, and, right? and yeah, yes. And so what, to, to pick on Nike for a moment, or what apparel makers and such have done, is they have removed this, the, the, uh, the distinction between the apparent uh, cosmetic distinction between youth sports and adult sports. Right? You, have, you can now outfit the six-year-old so that they are wearing a precise version of the adult's 
I mean, so they encourage this kind of thinking that what's going on at six is just a, is just a, a smaller scale, earlier version of the finished product. I mean, right. maybe that's, I don't think that is necessarily um, deliberate and it's meant, it was meant in an honest way, but in a perfect world, we wouldn't let seven-year-old baseball players dress up like adult baseball players, right? We would like to, we need to find ways to reinforce the sense that what they're doing is not the same. I hadn't thought about it from like a sartorial aspect, but um, yes, I do think we need to reinforce that aspect. There's a great, a really interesting book about this, if anyone's interested by this guy, Cy Ramo, who's better known as like the father of intercontinental ballistic missiles, um, called Extraordinary Tennis for the Ordinary Player. Mm -hmm. And he makes this distinction, he says, because up until the very elite level, the game is dominated by errors. Here's how you can win at the amateur level without being really very good. You know, at the elite level, I don't have as much for you because a lot more stuff goes into that. But he draws this like very scientific distinction saying the game is so different, I yeah. can give you these huge advantages at the amateur level that don't hold anymore at the elite level. And that's kind of what's being sold. I'll give you these advantages that, that work here, but they, they don't work and in fact in many ways inhibit performers later on. Yeah, yeah. Somebody was saying, I remember once talking to someone who said that uh, the way to win at, in, in kind of mediocre youth tennis uh, is simply to do nothing but lob. Right, and just wait for the other person to make an error. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, you can imagine how appalling that must be to watch. Right. Um, but, but yeah, no, there's all kinds of... Um, or like full court pressing in youth basketball. Yes, right? full, full court pressing in youth basketball uh, works the same way. Um, what is... Um, there's a, some interesting, let's look at these questions. Um, oh, they talk about Federer, yeah. Uh, oh, so this, let's, let's come back to the thing that brought us first together and briefly into conflict, which was the, the notion of deliberate practice and the, and the 10,000 hour thing. Um, so what we are really saying is that we need to redefine what deliberate practice is, just to make sure that people realize that although you do need to have a big chunk of deliberate practice to be excellent. What is meant by deliberate practice is probably broader than you think. Either, we could either, so I kind of think in the scientific community, the, the researchers that got most wedded to deliberate practice have continually backed into a corner where the definition of deliberate practice now is that which in retrospect did cause improvement, um, which scientifically is like a totally useless definition. Mm -hmm. so, so I would not like to broaden the definition of deliberate practice. I would like to just have like other other terms that you add to it and broaden the whole umbrella of what's useful. Yeah. Um, because the definition's already gotten so broad now that I have trouble like, keeping track of it. Yeah, basically. yeah. But I mean, it was a, there was a conflation of two, uh, of two ideas that have to be disconnected, which is specialization is one yeah. thing, yeah. and uh, large amounts of accumulated practice is another. Yeah. And they're not necessarily the same thing. That's right, they're not necessarily the same thing because it matters when you're doing it, and it's also about how you're doing it, right? This more sort of free-form exposure to problem-solving than this like hyper-technical, um, which may more work for golf kind yeah. of, kind of yeah. problem-solving. And I, I want to come back to one other thing you said, because it just reminded me of it, the, the, the clothing, you know, making these look like kids. There's some research I, I write about in Range that shows how powerful the effect of analogies are from one athlete to another. So if you give like coaches a description of a player and it's identical, you give different descriptions, the only difference is they make an analogy to one previous player versus another previous player with all other information being the same, including video, it tremendously changes the judgments of how people evaluate that player. If you say they're like the next, you know, 
this person versus they're like the next, like that person. So all of these sort of cues, I think, that start to make mm -hmm. someone fit like a normal mode play into these cognitive biases we have, you know, which end up with things like maybe why someone like Jeremy Lin gets overlooked because you don't analogize him to the players that you're used to. And yeah. so, so I think a lot of those markers can actually be dangerous for how we evaluate yeah. players. When you were talking, I was reminded, I think I finally, uh, uh, it made me think of a really fascinating piece of research that I learned years ago, um, which I've never until now been able to make sense of completely, which was an observation by Dean Simonton, who I'm sure you know, who is a researcher at UC Davis who has studied genius. And one of his really interesting observations is he was interested in this notion of when do geniuses peak? And what you discover is that people do their best work, people who are exceptional, do their best work in any given field. Now, we're not talking about sports here. Um, at some point into their career, for, and it differs by profession, but you know, for physicists, it might be eight years after becoming a professional physicist, you do, or mathematicians, it might be 12 years, poets, it might be 25 years. And so the question he asked was, is that because of your age? Is it eight years for the professional physicist because you do your best physics at 30? Or is it the distance from leaving school or the distance from point zero in your profession? In other words, does it have nothing to do with your chronological age, but rather just to do with when you started? And he does a whole bunch of analysis, and what he discovers is it's not chronological age. It is simply the time lag between when you enter, when you enter a new field and when you've sorted it out sufficiently to make sense of it. So he was making an argument to say there ought to be far more um, mid-career switching, that you can actually be a very, very good mathematician if you switch to a different to mathematics at age 40, because you will get, reap all the benefits from that first flush of discovering and making sense of a... But now you're adding a new wrinkle to this, which is that maybe a secondary reason why the mid-career switchers do so well is that they are bringing, they are also importing a whole set of uh, strategies and observations and they're importing their broadened base from their previous world. And that gives them another, a secondary advantage over those who are, um, have stayed in one world the entire time. Not only that, but they're much better at optimizing their match quality at that point because they know a lot more about themselves. They've learned about a lot about themselves, right? So I sort of take a swipe you know, in the book where, like Mark Zuckerberg famously said, young people are just smarter, so he just wants to hire young people. And then there was just some new research actually from MIT and the Census Bureau showing that like a startup founder at the age of founding, not when a company becomes successful of, of you know, like home run startups, the average age is like over 45 and a 50 year old is way more likely to succeed than like a 30 year old. And these are people who have done a bunch of stuff, learned something, have a new idea and found their way to that place where they uniquely can succeed. And I yeah. think there's a reason why that's more likely to happen to 50-year-olds than 30-year-olds. Than so we're running out of time, but I want to ask you, since you're like, some of the impetus for my book started um, when we had this debate five years ago, um, and you're one of the few people who's read it, um, and you're incredibly open-minded, and I'm kind of curious, like, because you're excellent at like updating your mental models, in my opinion, um, and totally open about it. And I'm sort of curious if your thoughts sort of about the 10,000 hour rule and specialization have changed over since we had this discussion five oh, yeah. years ago. You've totally convinced me. I, I would, I always, <laughs> I, um, but you convinced me years ago. Uh, I think I made that error that I described, that I conflated two separate things. Uh, 
large amount of practice being necessary, which I think is true. But I, in the back of my mind, thought that meant specialization, which I now realize is false. Um, so you made me smarter. Oh, um, thanks. And everyone who reads David's extraordinary book, Range, coming out May 28th, will get smarter. Thank you. Gu guaranteed. <laughs> thanks. Thank you. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.